28 through 39. So Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 39. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, we are thankful for this wonderful portion of scripture that we've just read. Such wonderful truth in it about your great love for us and your plans and purposes for us. They are secure. We praise you for that. Help us to have uh, hearts ready to receive uh, not only what we've read, but we, we will uh, talk about it a little bit here. Help us to receive it with joy, with understanding, and with uh, an effect in how we then live. All for the glory of the one who died for us. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So we're in this pinnacle chapter of Romans, uh, uh, of the book of Romans, chapter 8, which tells us that we are alive in the spirit, right? We're alive in the spirit, no longer dead to sin, chapter 6, no longer dead to the law. No, we are alive in the spirit. We can actually have the righteous requirement of law fulfilled in us by the Holy Spirit. The law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. There's no condemnation for us who are in Christ. Now we can live in a way that honors God. And he changes us completely. He changes our way of life, our way of thinking. He gives us a Christian worldview. That's what Paul said in verses 5 through 11. That uh, there are two types of people. They view life entirely different. And it all depends on whether the Holy Spirit indwells them. Either led by the the flesh and taken up with all the things of the flesh, which was a picture of the old person before coming to know Christ, or you are indwelled by the Spirit. He changes the way that you think and act and what you desire and how you live your life entirely changes you. 
Well, that makes sense. So we are under obligation, Paul says, to live according to the Spirit. No longer live according to the flesh. That would just be stupid. To, be, to, to chain ourselves to our flesh and the sinful passions, live like under the dominion of sin, that's just stupid when we've been set free. The chains have been removed. And so we should be led by the Spirit, he says. And he does lead us. He directs us. Those that know him are indwelt by him. He directs us. And he speaks to us. He speaks to us in his word. And he speaks to us through other believers. He speaks to us in our own conscience. And what he's telling us all along is, hey, you're the children of God. You've been adopted into God's family. Live like it. Live like it. You are heirs of God. You are co-heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed you suffer together with him, you also be glorified with him. Suffering is part of the process that God uses to move us forward to the end of glorification. So I just summed up one verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 1 through verse 17. And then he goes into a long extended section on living with suffering. That's 18 all the way through the end of the chapter, which we just read. You know, I was, I was telling uh, some people just this week that, that uh, I'd never really seen verses 31 through 39 that we will look at uh, this morning in light of its connection to the suffering of this present age. I'd almost always just kind of disconnected it from that. It's like, it's such a wonderful passage about our security in Christ and the love of God that will never end. But I'd never really just connected it with the flow of verse 18 through the rest of this chapter. But it is all about the suffering of this present time that is not worth comparing with the glory that awaits us. That's verse 18. So why can we live with suffering where we sin less and we live more holy? It is because we know, number one, that glory awaits us. It is the end that matters. Right? It's the end that matters. This, this life is so temporal. <laughs> it's so short. It's like, okay, I'm 68 and it seems like it's been a long life. But, you know, my mom's 93. That's a much longer life. But 93, it's not even a chick of the clock to eternity. In fact, there is no clock for eternity, right? Timeless. So, you know, we, we live with suffering because we know the glory that awaits us. And secondly, he said, we live with suffering because the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in our groaning. And Paul explained, we suffer in this world it's we groan under that we groan we don't grumble no grumbling allowed but it's okay to go oh man we, we had a little groaning going on this morning during worship practice and 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 the discovery that brian's other guitar was well it was groaning i guess it, it was not making the right sounds uh, it was messed up and so he had to go get another one it kind of through a loop to the worship team as they were practicing. It was like, oh, no grumbling. 
So get it grown, build it, back to living in a fallen world with fallen people and all of that. We groan, but we don't grumble. Hey, and then he says, even the creation itself, it groans under the, the curse that was brought by Adam into the world. It groans and it longs for the revealing of the sons of God when they receive their glorified bodies. He personifies creation. And then and he says, and the spirit groans. The spirit groans. We don't know what to pray at times. We just don't know what to pray. What's God's will? What, what does he want to accomplish through this suffering in my life? I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know what to pray. That's, that's okay. The Spirit, he'll communicate your heart and your mind and your soul and everything to the Father who searches the mind of the Spirit. And the Spirit knows our heart and mind. And so he communicates with, with the Father with groanings that are not expressed verbally. Silent groanings. My groanings tend to be loud. His are, are silent. We don't hear them, but he groans all, all the way. That's so beautiful that the Spirit is groaning with us in our suffering. That's encouraging. And then, lastly, uh, we, we began to look at that we live with suffering, not only because of the prospect of glory and the, and the ministry of the Spirit to us, but because God is working out his sovereign plan of salvation in our lives. And that includes the suffering. So we, we, we ended last week looking at verse 28, which I read just a little bit ago. For we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, right? What a great promise that is, that God is sovereignly working out all things. Wow, that was weird. The compressor, yeah. Yeah. Um, that was a groan, wasn't it? It was like a groan. Yeah. So, God is working out all things, including our suffering, to accomplish His good purpose. And it's good. It's like, let's realize that's what suffering is from God's perspective. And we should have His perspective. That the suffering that we go through is good. And the reason it's good is because it's God's purpose through that suffering to conform us to the image of his son. That's the ultimate good. It's not the good of feeling good. It's not the good of pleasantness. It's not the good of pleasurable living. It's the good of looking more like Christ as we live. And then, and this is where we're picking up with your insert, if you're filling in your blanks, here you go, God's providence. He takes up next. God's providence. And it's verses 29 and 30. Let me read those verses again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the reason that we can be confident that all things will work together for our good is because God is sovereign. <laughs> he's sovereign and he's providentially working out all things. And he will bring to completion what he started. That's Philippians 1.6. Some of you know that verse by heart. I'm confident of this very thing. That he began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. The day when Christ returns. 
Now, before we look at the specific details of this wonderful process, fivefold process of salvation are mentioned in those verses, we, we need to understand that Paul's focus is in verses 29 and 30 is entirely, entirely, completely, absolutely and only focused on what God does, not on what we do. It's on what God does, not what we do. He's not refer even to the responsibility of people to repent and believe the gospel. I mean, the reason for this is not because people don't need to believe, repent of their sin, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They must. But it's because he is stressing that the reason that we can live with suffering in this present time is because of the actions of God and not because of what we do or who we are. It's all his great work. So what what does Paul say about God's providence in salvation that gives us hope and courage to live with suffering in this present time. Remember, this is connected to suffering, living with suffering in this present time. And what he says is that there is a five-fold process that God performs entirely on his own that guarantees that we'll be ultimately conformed to the image of his son. And this five-fold process is found in five words from these two verses. And the first of those you're writing it in, is foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. For those whom he foreknew, he says he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Now some have taken this word that he foreknew, this, this statement that he foreknew certain people, to have a, that it's the same as a reference to God's omniscience. Now what is omniscience? Big word. Not a word that's actually found in the Bible, but represented in the Bible. Well, omniscience is that God knows all things, past, present, and future, the actual as well as the possible. That's a definition of omniscience. And some people think that that's what it's talking about here. So the, the view is that, and with those that think this, that God looked down the corridors of time. And he saw according to his knowledge, who would believe and who would not believe, who would repent of their sin and who would not. And he saw those that would place their faith in Christ, and he then predestined them to become like his son, based on what he saw them do. Hmm. It should be noted that this verse does not say, it doesn't say that God foreknew what people would do, but he foreknew people. Not what, but whom in the verse, right? For those whom he foreknew, not what he foreknew. That's the the details of actions, but people. It is whom he foreknew. So God's foreknowledge is not a reference to his knowing all things at all times. It is true he does. He has that knowledge. It will never change. But a correct understanding of this foreknowledge is that God previously knew, that's the for part of it, right? For knowledge. He previously knew in a relational way, in a relational way, those who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. God didn't simply have bare knowledge of the facts of our lives, what we would do, would we believe or, or not. 
but he knew us intimately before he created us. Get how big God is in this. He foreknew us relationally before we were ever born. This is the same idea, the same foreknowledge that is referred to in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5, where God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah, I mean, you're, you're my guy. I just want you to know, before you were ever conceived in your mother's womb, I knew you. Relationally, he knew him. And had a plan and purpose for him. Just like our text is telling us that he had a plan and a purpose in his relational knowledge of us before we ever existed. This is the same foreknowledge that the father had of his own son, recorded in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, where it says, He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. The father didn't just know facts about his son, that his son would come into the world, would become the savior through his sacrificial death. No, he intimately knew him from all eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect triunity. That's what makes what we sang a little bit ago seem all the more significant when the father turned his face away as he buried his son under the wrath that we deserve. He knew him from before the foundation of the world. So before there was ever let there be, there was relational intimacy. It had always existed between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is the same foreknowledge that is spoken of in relation to God and the nation of Israel as stated in Amos 3.2. God said to the children of Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. What? Did God have mere knowledge of Israel only and not all the rest of the nations of the earth? Well, of course he had knowledge of every nation, including the nations today. He's always known all the nations, knowledge-wise. No, he did have a special relationship an intimate relationship with the nation of Israel that did not exist with any of the other nations. And so that's the meaning in our present text, that God foreknew we who are believers in an intimate and personal way before we were ever a gleam in our father and mother's eyes, before we ever existed, before we were ever conceived he personally, intimately knew us. Second word, predestination. Predestination. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, right? He predestined. And this word has the meaning of to mark out, to appoint, or to determine beforehand. To mark it out beforehand, to appoint beforehand, because that's what the word at the beginning of that emphasizes pre-appointment, predetermination, um, previously marked out. So what this means then is that God predetermined or he appointed uh, beforehand the end 
or the goal towards which he was moving all of those whom he previously, in a relational, a relational way, knew from before creation. And Paul identifies that end as being conformed to the image of his son. Did you get this? I mean, God previously knew this. Okay, what's the, what's the point of that? I think I'll take those that I had a relational, intimate relationship before creation, and I'm going to, in time, move them to become like my son. He predetermined that for us. He marked us out to that glorious end. So the goal is not, the goal is not simply that believers get to go to heaven. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. We get to go to heaven when we die instead of going to hell. But that's not the goal. The goal is to go to heaven and become exactly like Jesus in our fullness. Now, that doesn't mean we become God. We become like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will be sinless. We'll have a glorified body. We'll have a perfect relationship with him. That's what it's talking about. That's the, what God predetermined us for. So in context, then, everything that happens to us, even all the suffering of this present time, is focused on moving us toward that goal, toward that end, being conformed to the image of the Son. So before we existed or could do anything or think anything or say anything, God had already set out the boundaries of our lives that would lead us to the glorious inheritance of becoming like his son. Is that not wonderful? Are you getting how this ought to help us live with suffering in this present time? God's fivefold process. But... The ultimate reason, the ultimate reason, according to Paul, for our predestination is that he, Christ, might become the firstborn among many brothers, he says. We become formed to his image, and there's a reason for that, that he might be glorified as the firstborn of God. So this emphasizes the preeminence of Christ and God's purpose in saving sinners. And in the context of the culture of biblical history... It doesn't have the same meaning today as it did then, but in the context of biblical history, the firstborn was the most important child, the most honored child, the most blessed child, the one who would be given the greater portion of an inheritance with special honor and privilege. So think of this. It's just quite wonderful that the father did not desire his son to be alone in sharing the inheritance that was marked out for him because of him being the firstborn. God has chosen us and predestined us to be like his son so that we would be glor- that he would be glorified and we would share in the benefits of his glory. Wow! <laughs> it's just like, makes me want to shout. Makes me want to shout. Yes. Third word, called. Called. Now this does not mean, and those of me... For knew he predestined, those who he predestined, he also called. Now, this does not, as some people think, have the same meaning as being chosen. That word's not in our text. That, that is true of us, that we were chosen before the foundation of the world by God. Being chosen actually deals with the subject of election, and we're going to get more into election in chapters 9 through 11, but that's not what he's talking about here. Being chosen deals with election, which took place before time began, while being called brings us into 
history, our personal history, actually, when we were brought to saving faith in Christ Jesus. Now, got to see how this is all working out. God foreknew us before time. He predestined us before time to become like his son. And the only way that that could actually happen in time was for him to call us. This is bringing us right into time. Now, this has often been referred to as the effectual call of God, theologically. The effectual call of God, whereby the Holy Spirit uh, applies the gospel to the hearts and minds of sinners, um, and particularly those whom God foreknew, whom he predestined to become like his son, where, the, where he brings sinners to recognition of their sins, to, to repentance for sin, and making them aware that they need forgiveness, and then drawing them to repentance and faith in the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the effectual call of God of sinners to salvation. By the way, this is what Jesus was really referring to when he said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that word draws, that chooses, was used of a, a net that would be thrown into the water and would be dragged to the shore with all kinds of fish in it. And, and sometimes that's what really is happening. Sometimes he's drawing us like a gentle draw, and sometimes it takes a drag. He's just got a Yankist to repentance and faith in Christ. Some of us resist a little bit more than others. But that's what it was. The Father draws people. And then in verse 37 in that same chapter, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So all that the Father gives are those that he draws. And all that he draws and gives actually do come to Jesus. There's no resisting it. Irresistible grace is what it's called in Calvinism. Irresistible grace. We are drawn to Jesus and we're given by the Father to the Son. And once we're in the hands of the sons, we are forever secure. That's what he's saying. The fourth word justification. Those whom he called, he also justified. Now, it's the call of God that brings us to repentance and faith, and the result of believing in the finished work of Christ Jesus is that we're declared righteous or justified in the sight of God. And we've spent a lot of time actually talking about that already earlier in the letter, chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, 21, all doing with justification by faith. But to put it in the context of our current text, God knew us intimately before time again and determined that we'd be conformed to the image of his son. And in time, he called us to repentance and saving faith, which resulted in us being declared by God to be righteous in his eyes. Wow, this process just gets better and better. One last word, glorification. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now in 8, 18 through 25, we, we saw that the glory that is being revealed to us in, in the future 
is one of the reasons that we're able to live with suffering in this present time. But notice that in our present text, each of the five parts of the salvation process, all done by God, are written in the past tense, including glorified. Including glorified. Now, is Paul saying then that we've already been glorified? Uh, I, for one, would be very sad if that was the case. Because my body is still decaying day by day. I, I can barely get my pants on in the morning right now with my back hurting so bad. I mean, if this is glory, I don't know. It's not what I expected. This isn't. We've not yet been glorified. Well, why does he write it in the past tense? Well, the point that he's making in verse 30 is that so certain is our glorification in the future that he writes it in the past tense. Did you get that? <laughs> Boy, I was expecting a little bit of an amen behind that. So certain is our glorification that he writes it as though it's already happened. Because in the mind of God, it's a done deal. It's a done deal. So while our experience, you know, is that glorification is something that we have to wait for and we have hope in, you know, that when Christ returns, we'll be glorified. We know that it's in the purposes and plans of God, but the truth is, in God's mind, there's no way. It's done in his mind. It's sure. It's secure. And his promise to us is certain because of who he is. Because of who he is. Not because of who we are. Now listen to these words that come out of the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah wrote them, but it fits so well with what we're talking about. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, declaring a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. <laughs> Praise God. We, we should be able to live with suffering Groaning but not grumbling because of the glory that awaits us, because the Spirit is interceding for us, because God's salvation plan for us is a done deal in God's heart and mind. It will be completed by him for us. And then lastly, number four, because we are secure in God's love. And that's verses 31 through 39. We are secure in God's love. Now let's think for a moment about doubting God's love. Doubting God's love. You know, doubt itself can be a great hindrance in our lives. I mean, it can keep, keep us from reaching goals or desires. It may even keep us from making any desires or uh, making any goals. We're just too afraid it wouldn't happen. It can restrain us from accomplishing things that we want to accomplish. We just doubt that it will be able to actually take place. I can think of times in my own life when I doubted and I, I didn't even proceed to do something because I doubted that it would be successful. I'll give you just one 
crazy example was when I was a teenager. And I was a small guy. I was 5'7", 130 pounds. Not much taller. In fact, I think I'm shrinking back to my that height. I'm a little bit heavier now. But I was a small guy. And, and I never went out for any sports in high school, football or basketball, because I doubted whether I could make the team. Not because I didn't want to or didn't desire to be involved in it. I just didn't think I would make the team. So I didn't even attempt to make a team. Well, you know, in the epistle of James, we read that doubt can hinder us in the same way in our spiritual lives. Listen to these words from James 1, 2 through 7. Joel will have them up, no doubt. There we go. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. By the way, it's trials that bring suffering, right? Okay. Make sure we're on the same page there. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of a God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Oh, how doubting can impact us. Now, I know that in my own experience, there have been times where I've doubted God, and consequently, I believe I haven't received the blessing that God may have wanted to give me through a specific trial. Uh, You know, some suffering. Doubt has hindered me from being as complete and mature as he wanted me to be through that trial. In John Bunyan's book, uh, classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, he tells the story of Christian, who is on his journey to the celestial city. How many of you have read that book? Fair number. Many of you have not. Fantastic book. Fantastic book. You ought to read it sometime. And they actually make it in modern English, so it's a little bit easier to read than the original. I read it in both, but... So the Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory of a believer's journey through this life on his or her way to heaven. And in that story, at a particular juncture, Christian, main character, and hopeful, another main character, stray off the path that leads to the celestial city, and they end up in Doubting Castle. And Doubting Castle is owned and ruled by the tyrant, Giant Despair. And after facing much torture and even entertaining thoughts about taking their own lives, Christian suddenly remembers that he has the, the key of promise on his neck, over his bosom, and that key will unlock every lock in Doubting Castle. And so they make their escape, and they continue on their journey. Hmm. Probably, probably there are some of us who have been locked up at times in Doubting Castle. Under the tyrant, giant despair. There are perhaps some things that we've doubted about God. You know, something like in our context, whether or not he's working out all things for our good or whether he has the power to help us 
in our time of suffering? Or does he even really care about what's happening in our lives? Probably the most debilitating doubt that we can experience is whether or not we can be absolutely certain about our security, our eternal security, and will God love us forever? I mean, that particular doubt can essentially paralyze us so that we we don't experience the joy and the peace and all the other fruit of the Holy Spirit that he wants us to have. And it may keep us from being the overwhelming conquerors that he wants us to be, that we just read about a little while ago. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. So what that doubt really is, is a fear of being rejected by God. Right? And then being rejected by God because of our failure to be what he wants us to be or what we think he requires us to be. It is that despairing thought of whether did I truly believe? Did I really believe? Did I believe enough? And if we, if we did, how come we're not more like Christ? How come we're not more conformed to his image right now? So it's the fear that when we die, we're going to find out that we didn't do enough. That's a horrible doubt. It is a paralyzing doubt. And Paul meets it head on in these last verses in chapter 8. And he knows that if we're to experience a life where we sin less and we live more holy, especially in face of all the suffering that we experience in this present time, we must not have a shadow of a doubt about God's love for us and our, our eternal security. He wants believers to know that their security is not a myth of human origin, but it is a matter, a secure matter of divine love and providential protection. So, what is the conclusion? What is the logical conclusion? And that's exactly what Paul is addressing. He starts it off. We, we read it. What then shall we say to these things? He's saying, what's the conclusion to this? What should we, you know, understand the result of this? The Spirit's indwelling presence is helping us with our suffering. God's salvation plan that is so sure and certain. What, is, what should we say to these things? And the question suggests that there's this logical, rational, reasonable conclusion what he's taught. So if what he has said is true, and it is, it is, then what should be our response to it? No. We have to kind of ask the question, what does he mean by these things? He says it. What shall we say to these things? What are these things, right? Pronouns stand in place of something else. Well, at the very least, it's referring to the previous two verses where he talked about the fivefold providential plan of of God in, in saving us. But I think, personally, that it's broader than that. I think it goes back to the whole subject of suffering in this present time that's not worth comparing with the glory that awaits us. It seems likely that that is what he's talking about, how we can endure suffering in this present time because of the great hope of glory that we have that is all wrapped up in God's absolute love for us. So in the remaining part of this section... Paul answers that question, what shall we say to these things, by asking four more questions. <laughs> I love Paul. It's awesome. It's like, why do you always answer a question with a question? 
It's like, uh, for good reason. These four questions that he asks in these verses are rhetorical questions. Now, if you don't know what that means, it simply means that you don't really need to give the answer because the answer is so obvious. It's understood in asking the question. So, what is question one? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? The obvious answer is that if God is for us, no one can be against us, right? And that's the obvious answer. But I don't think that this is so much a statement that all our enemies have already been swept away. As much as it is a statement, there, there are no enemies that we face that can have any effect on what God has planned for us in our salvation because he is forever on our side. So remember this statement? If God is for us, he's on our side. Who can be against us? Since God is all-powerful, and all wise, and many other things, no enemy can negatively impact what he's doing for us. So the question stresses not actually that there are no enemies against us, it is really stressing that there are no valid challengers against us in the battle line. You might want to write that down. No valid challengers. With God on our side... In our corner, there's no valid challengers that could affect our eternal security. But the opponents are out there. The enemies are out there. The devil, his demons, the world, unbelievers, and guess what? Even our own consciences at times, our own hearts will condemn us at times. But none of these, none of these, none of these will ever be able to take away the security that we have in in God, because God is for us. Oh, man. Oh. And then Paul gives the proof. He gives the proof for the reason, as he does with each of these questions. He gives the proof that since God is for us, there are no valid challengers. When in verse 32, he puts it this way. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously or freely give us all things? And this is what is known as an argument from the greater to the lesser. An argument from the greater to the lesser. So the meaning is certainly that if God showed the greatest possible expression of love by not sparing his own son, but giving his own son up to his own holy wrath so that we might escape you know, eternal death, well, because of our sin and being his enemy, then certainly, absolutely, assuredly, God will give us the lesser things, which include the promise of eternal security and safety in his love. So the meaning is something like this. I just kind of wrote it out this way. God the Father has a son, a beloved son, a son that is precious to him. The son never committed a single sin. He was sinless. In all that he did, he was pleasing to the Father. On the other hand, there was us. Sinners and enemies, everyone. Yet on his precious son, he pronounced and executed the sentence of condemnation we deserved. It is a sentence immeasurable in its severity, and it is carried out in every detail. God did not spare his son, 
did not mitigate the severity of the sentence in any way whatsoever. The son fully bore that horrendous curse. That bitter cup, love drank it up. Love drank it up. It's empty now for me, as the old hymn said. That being true, then even more certain is the fact that God will graciously give us all things. And the all things here is probably a reference to all things pertaining to life and godliness so that we can live in a way that we sin less and live holy to the glory of God. Question two. Question two. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And with this second question, Paul brings us right back into the courtroom that we were in back in chapter 3. The language of this verse pictures a courtroom with God the Father as the judge sitting at his bench, and we're there as well as defendants. The word charge that is used in this verse was a legal term. It would refer to someone who brought a legal charge against someone else and it went to court. So we're in the courtroom. And once again, we might think that the obvious answer to this question, who should bring a charge against God's elect, is that absolutely no charges can be brought against us. And in a sense, that's true. But I think the the meaning of this in context is that there are no valid charges. No valid charges that can be raised against believers. You say, well, 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 what are you talking about? Well, let's just think of Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, where it says that Satan is the believer's appointment, and he daily stands before the throne of God accusing us, accusing us. The world actively makes charges against believers, Actively makes charges against them. Why? Because they hate God and they hate his people. Unbelievers delight in accusing believers whenever they fall short of what they claim to be true of Christianity. They just can't wait. See, 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 hypocrite, liar. Of course they're making charges. And even our own consciences will scream at us at times. We think something like, how could I possibly be a Christian and still think that way? Or how could I be a Christian and do those things? That probably doesn't apply to any of you, but it has to me. Yes, there are charges that will be brought against us, but they are not valid charges. That's his point. They're not charges that stick. You know, they don't stick or can affect our eternal security. They can't. The proof that Paul gives that such charges have no effect on our salvation is what he says next. It is God who justifies. How simple a little sentence is that, right? It is God who justifies. God has declared us righteous in his sight, and nothing can change that. Nothing can change it. The judge has declared us righteous. So picture a courtroom again, if you will. There is God, the Father who is the judge, sitting behind the bench, and he's listening to the prosecutors, Satan and the world and unbelievers, and they're leveling all kinds of accusations, all kinds of charges against you, the defendant, sitting at that table. And as they're leveling their accusations, you know what's going on inside of you? It's like, they're right. I did that. I, I kind of feel condemned. I feel... Guilty, guilty. 
But at just the right moment, your advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, stands up and he says, hey, judge, these charges made against my client here that I'm representing are immaterial. They're irrelevant because I already paid the penalty for the sins for which they are being charged. I've paid the penalty. The judge judge says, you're absolutely right. I declare them righteous. (laughs) Blow your mind. So there are no valid challengers and, and there are no valid charges that can be leveled against us that can affect God's love for us. Third question, who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Now, this question is actually written in the future tense, and it looks like it, it, it must be looking to the, the time when we will stand before God's judgment seat. Who will condemn? The ex- execution of, of God's condemnation will come upon sinners, but it will not come upon those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember verse 1 of chapter 8? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, there will be a day of reckoning. And by the way, it will be the Lord Jesus himself who will be judging people for their sin. Acts 10.42 says that God commanded uh, the the apostles to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God, that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And then in Acts 17, verse 30 and 31, we read the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Jesus will be judging people. Will Jesus condemn us? (laughs) The answer to that is no. Yes, God's wrath will be poured out in fullness upon sinners, but not one single drop of his holy wrath will drop upon a believer in Christ Jesus. Uh, We may be condemned by Satan and the world and unbelievers and even sometimes by our own conscience, but there is no valid condemnation against us as the children of God. And Paul makes it clear that Jesus won't judge us. Notice what he says after that. First, he says, Christ is the one who died. Now, his point is clear. Christ died for those whom God has chosen. In his death, the redemption price paid the penalty for sin. And if he paid the penalty for all of our sins, why would he then judge us, right? He died so that we wouldn't have to. Secondly, he says, more than that, he was raised. And the point is that the resurrection was the visible indication, the visible indication that his death was sufficient to deal with our sin. Third, he says, that Christ is at the right hand of God. And he's at the place of highest honor, signifying that God was well pleased with his finished work on our behalf. And fourth, he says that Christ is interceding for us. So, you know, it's impossible that Christ could both intercede for us and judge us at the same time. 
Consequently, we should be confident that there, and we should have a, a shadow of a doubt that we are eternally secure in God's love because there are no valid challengers, there's no valid charges, and there's no valid condemnation for those who are in Christ. Last question. Who shall separate us from the love of God? No <laughs> That's right. This last rhetorical question Paul asks, he, he focuses on the fact that there is no valid separation. No valid separation. Now, we know there are times that we feel a little distant from God, right? When we sin, don't you feel that a little bit? It's like, I feel like I'm out of touch. That's why God is so wonderfully promised. If we, well, if you confess your sin, you're, you're just absolutely restored immediately. Beautiful. There's no valid separation, he says, from the love of Christ. And, and by the way, it should be pointed out that the question focuses on the love of Christ for us and not on our love for him. Who, who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, not our love for Christ? Do you see the difference? Yeah. I hope you do. Because to say that we will never be separated from our love for Christ would not give us a whole lot of confidence because we know what our love for Christ is like. It, it's up and down, right? It's up and down. The question then is essentially whether there is anything or anyone that could cause Christ to turn his back on us, to stop loving us. And the wonderful assurance is that God's love in Christ remains unchanging and unending. And the proof of this, he then explains by giving a list of a number of possible candidates that we might think could separate us from the love of God in Christ. Let's just rush through them. Tribulation, philipsis, that Greek word is one that refers to trouble that inflicts oppression from an outside source. Outside source. Distress, stenokaria, it's a word that refers to trouble that inflicts oppression as well, but generally thought to be internal. So there's external and internal forces against us. Persecution, diagmas is a word that refers to something pursuing us, and then bad things in this case. It was an ever-present concern for the early church. And by the way, it's been a concern for the church ever since. Every believer of all ages experienced persecution for their faith. And Christ, in fact, said, blessed are you. Blessed are you if you're persecuted for my name's sake. Famine can probably and does probably refer here to hunger, not to, you know, like natural famine across a wide group. But just you, as a person, you, you, you're, you're hungry. You have no way to satisfy your hunger. Nakedness could refer to a, a lack of sufficient clothing, not absolute nakedness, but you just don't have, you don't have enough clothes to go out and eat below weather and survive. Danger. Uh, refers to threatening circumstances. And the sword, uh, the machaira, refers to the short sword by the Roman sol- used by the Roman soldiers. But in this case, it's a reference to capital punishment, to execution for one's faith. So that's a long list, isn't it? Things that people might think could separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But Paul then goes on to quote from Psalm 44, 22, when he says, For your sake, God, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, why does he do this? Why does he include this quote? 
because it is intended to reinforce what he has just described as the type of suffering that we face in this life that can, in this present time, that can never separate us from the love of God. Suffering, he says, is not unusual for believers. It's not. And it is one of the primary means that God uses to turn his children into looking like his son, conforming us to the image of his son. But he doesn't stop there. He, he explains that the suffering believers encounter should be viewed more than what they must expect and what they must endure as best as they are able. Notice his next phrase. No, I think most translations have but, and that would probably be my choice in word. It's a contrast. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Oh, what things? That list. That list of great suffering. We're more than conquerors, he says, in those things. Believers are not just to make it through suffering. They should overwhelmingly prevail in it. That's the word that he uses. An overwhelming prevailing over the suffering, the negative effect of it. And I think this, you know, may, may be more of a reference to the ultimate victory of glorification in a coming day. We'll ultimately, overwhelmingly conquer. But it is written in the present tense. The verb is written in the present tense, suggesting that our victory over suffering should be taking place right now, in this present time, when we're facing the suffering. Hmm. We should make sure, we should make sure at the end of that, that we notice that our overwhelming victory, our conquering, is not attained in our own strength, but through him who loved us. Really, it all it is all God's work, right? This is what he's stressing. It's all God's work on our behalf. But he's still not done. He wants us to be so sure of this. Have no doubt about it. He ends the section on a personal note. Just notice it. He says, for I am sure, or I am confident, as many translations have it. I am confident. It's interesting that up to this point, he used the plural, we. Us, we, us. And now he says, for I am confident. Not that he's distancing himself from everyone. This includes me. I'm absolutely confident about my security in God's love. And he goes on then to give another list of the types of things. Another list. Another list of the types of things that we might think could separate us from the love of God. And the list that he gives here, there's four pairs and two single items. Four pairs and two single items. The first pair is death and life. Well, those are the you know, extremes, right? Death and life. And we can easily see how the great adversary death might seem to be a problem. But is it really? <laughs> no. We've had a big reminder of that in the last couple of years with all the memorials that we've had for those that have been loved by the Lord and taken to heaven, right? Uh, that death isn't the end. I mean, if Christ died to remove the sting of death, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six, and the fear of death, Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15, how can death be a potential problem or hindrance for those whom he has called and justified and glorified? Life also presents many problems with its persecution and trials. 
And even our own failures as, uh, as believers can cause us concern. But there is nothing in life or in death that can separate us from God's love. The second pair involves angels and rulers. Probably referring to holy angels and fallen angels. Angels and rulers. Neither elect angels or heavenly, heavenly angels, however you want to refer to them, nor those fallen angels who rebelled with Satan, nor Satan himself, who is a fallen angel, can keep us from being loved by God. Wow, that's pretty cool. And the third pair includes things present and things to come, involving what we are presently experiencing and what we will yet experience until that day. So it involves time. And then comes the first single item, powers. And it's not clear what he may have in mind. The word that's used there, dunamis, is a, a, is a word for power. It can refer to just power in many different ways. But when it's found in the plural, as it is here, it generally refers to miraculous powers, miraculous supernatural acts. But I don't think that it's a reference to God's supernatural acts. I think it's a, a reference to satanic supernatural, supernatural acts that he does and his demons do. It can't separate, it from, uh, separate us from the love of God. And space can't separate us from God's love either. That's indicated by the fourth pair. Height and depth. Height and depth. God controls everything in heaven and on earth and even under the earth, right? He controls it all. So there's no worry for believers there. <laughs> and then the last item, the second single one, is anything else in all creation. <laughs> like, well, I haven't given you enough to think about with the 20 or so items that I've already given you. Anything else, you know, let's throw it in. And so he, you know, he abandons his, the specifics and he settles for this sweeping statement that includes everything else that could be covered. So absolutely nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, since God is the only uncreated one, everything fits into this, right? God is the only uncreated one. Everything else is created, including ourselves. I've, I've talked to many people who said, yeah, I believe that no one else can separate me. And Satan can't separate me from God's love. But I think I can separate myself from God's love. Are you a created being? Well, yes, I am. Well, then you're in this list. You can't even separate yourself from God's love in Christ Jesus. You see, the issue is providence and power. And you don't have either. God is sovereign. And he providentially is ruling over all things. And he is able to do all that he plans and purposes to do for us. So no one and nothing is as powerful as God. And therefore, no one and nothing can separate us from his love. Well, all praise be to God our Father his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who makes all things known to us. Aren't you glad that he's made this known to us? We're going to pray, and uh, the worship team is going to come up, and we're going to sing one more song about the love of God for us. Just let it, let it just kind of sweep over you. Lord, we are thankful for this passage, thankful for your love for us. Thank you that we are secure 
Even in the face of all the suffering that we experience in this life, these words have explained to us that that is all part of your good purposes to accomplish your good will in our life. And that good will is to make us more like your son. And the reason for that is that your son, our Savior, could be glorified and magnified. So help us, Lord. Help us to live in a way that honors you, where we sin less and live more holy because we have been sanctified and we are alive in the Holy Spirit. All praise and glory be to you. Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know you yet, may what what they've heard this morning be what you use to draw them and call them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. May their ears be open and their hearts ready to receive what you have for them. We ask all of this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.